I'm Justin. I'm a philosopher, web developer, and classicist. But this episode, I'm a Nintendo fanboy as I obsess about their failed 90s console, the Virtual Boy. I'm Forrester, and I have an irrational fear of free samples. This episode, we'll be discussing what you experience every time you visit a city, but maybe never notice. City design. I'm Mark, and you're about to discover that I am way too loud. This episode, I'm sharing quite possibly the cringiest true story of my past. obsession. I want to start with Nintendo's Virtual Boy, and my goal is to get you, if not as excited about how strange and unique and bizarre and interesting this thing is, at least give the sense of why I find it so bizarre and unique and interesting. I suppose we could start with just what the thing is. So it's on the table for all the video podcast listeners. Um, (laughs) It's a 32-bit tabletop 3D console manufactured by Nintendo, uh, but it wasn't always that way. What fascinates me about it most, I think, is the history of the product and what it could have been and where it came from compared to what it actually is and when it came out. The system came out in North America, anyway, on August 15th, 1995, and was discontinued shortly thereafter, March 2nd, 1996. So it was one of the shortest lifespans of any console, certainly any Nintendo console, less than a year lifespan. Uh, It was a commercial failure. Most people haven't heard of it, and if you have, what you know about it is that it is a commercial failure. It's (laughs) it's sold only 770,000 units, and to put that in perspective, so we're talking less than 1 million, to put that in perspective, the Nintendo Switch, as of last September, has sold over 22 million just to compare it to other things, the Game Boy, 118 million lifetime sales. Jeez. Super Nintendo, almost 50 million. Game Boy Advance, 81 million. The Wii, 101 million. That's That's been Nintendo's biggest success in the TV home console market. The Virtual Boy, by far, is the biggest commercial disaster. So people use it as a whipping boy, and they're like, this is not, <laughs> this is this is, this is is a terrible, um, failed experiment, and that's usually where the narrative ends. The thing only displays in red and black. Um, <laughs> so it seems like it's a handicap system where it doesn't, like the, the Game Boy was monochrome or green if you had the original one, but it seemed okay because it was a handheld thing. and. You know, Nintendo power Nintendo consoles are tend to be somewhat underpowered. You think about the you know the GameCube compared to the Xbox or the Switch compared to the PS4 and Xbox One, but at least they have the same amount of colors. You know what I mean? And uh, so the the Virtual Boy seemed hampered by all kinds of things, especially you know by the sales, by the colors, uh, by the strange form factor. I mean, the part of the fascination for me of this thing is just how strange it looks. And I don't know if I want to call it beautiful, but there's some kind of, <laughs> there's a design aesthetic to it, the kind of, the curve. So I just like the design of it, for one thing. It looks like no other console. So I guess it fascinates me as a collector. If you look at, you know, uh, 
any other collection of consoles, handheld or TV-based stuff, they just look like different variations on the rectangle. PS3 is convex and the Xbox 360 is concave, but they're more or less just rectangular bricks. The Virtual Boy has all these knobs and dials and it's stretched and elongated and it's got that strange visor thing which reminds you of the way that headsets look nowadays with like the Oculus Rift or the PlayStation VR. And it has this highly suggestive name of Virtual Boy, which I think didn't do it any favors, but is indicative of the grand ambition and design that the thing had. It wasn't simply a Nintendo invention. The technology behind it was originally developed by a company in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So it's like it's a New England, um, I don't want to say it's entirely a New England invention, but it would not have existed had it not been for a company called Reflection Technology in, uh, in New England. And this is the mid-1980s. So the thing came out, like I said, in 95, but the technology behind it was developed in 85 and eventually refined over the successive years. So the thing, there's a reason why it's only red and black um, LED display. The, this engineer in, in Massachusetts at Reflection Technology, what became Reflection Technology, had this idea of what if you could wear a computer, basically? What if you could have some kind of small display where you can see an image uh, hands with without using your hands? So it'd have to be some kind of goggle type thing, um, a display that would show you an image of like, well, maybe you can read an email with, with your hands free, or maybe you could, um, as if you're a doctor doing surgery and you need to read vital signs and you, your hands are otherwise occupied, or if you're a mechanic and you have to be underneath the, you know, the car you're working on and um, you need to see instructions for what to do next. What if there was a way to have it be portable, you know, run on battery, etc. And this guy wanted to find um, a technology to that would be feasible to, to have miniaturized and put on someone's eye. And you couldn't do it with the current TV technology, it was just too big and expensive. So you think about CRT t technology, the giant tube TVs that used to weigh 100 pounds and were impossible to move around unless you had three people. It, you just weren't going to be able to get that kind of screen onto a small device. So he went to LED technology. His idea was to take this single line of LED lights and have uh, a mirror on which the light would reflect and the mirror would oscillate so quickly that an image would be printed in a different direction. So inside the Virtual Boy you have these two lines of LED lights on both sides of your head, but in the middle where you look through the lenses there are mirrors that are oscillating 50 times a second or something, something that you can't see with the naked eye. But when the, when the row of lights emits different patterns, and they're very tiny, it'll print, it, it'll emit different patterns of lights so that you end up seeing a complete image. You know, some of them are on and some of them are off. You know, some of them are shooting red light and some of them are, are not emitting any red light. And they're doing it, but they're doing it at such a frequency that your eye ends up seeing a complete screen. I can't even wrap my head around how you code something like yeah, that. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand how you cut it, and I don't understand how the tech works more than its difference from LED screens with pixel um, lines of pixels that are already present. 
but if you think about it, if you've ever seen a printer just print mm -hmm. um, one line at a time, and it sort of it somehow knows, go down one line and then print a little bit of black underneath the dot of black that it printed above, and it, it stops printing when there's a space and it starts printing again. Imagine each of those lines as being emitted from the light in the, gotcha. the, the um, what they call a scanned linear array. You know, if you looked at just the lights, it would just like look like a, a bunch of flickers, I suppose. But if because it's projected onto a surface which reflects them in order, you see what looks like a, 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 an image that's difficult to tell apart from a normal screen. Hmm. So when you actually look at this thing, I was surprised at how sharp and clear the image is. Scanners use that technology, that, that red line technology. And this guy and this company figured out a way to miniaturize it and use oscillating mirrors instead of moving um, the, the light itself. He was inspired by a scanning technology that already existed, but when he went to try and build prototypes of this device, it ended up being uh, printers that he used. And because LEDs were a mature technology, they were inexpensive, and uh, red in particular was pretty inexpensive, and it was used in printers at the time, that was what he ended up using for what they call the private eye device. So the private eye device is the kind of earliest form of what developed into the Virtual Boy. And it only had red and black, but that's just because the black and red printer technology was the standard at the time. And so this is almost a Marxist point because the, the means of production and the economic reality of the time, the state of technology of the time, determined the kind of invention that this guy made, and his invention determined the kind of invention that Nintendo worked with eventually. So it's just fascinating. Like People laugh at how you could only see essentially one color, the red, and then it's just a black background. But there was, I mean, there was this reason for it, and it happened, it, it's something that could have only happened at that particular time, and in those circumstances, you know, that you, you would not get a red and black console nowadays. It's just the technology has gone so much farther beyond it. So it's something, it's just one aspect of it that makes it so unique and strange that it makes me wonder how the thing got made at all. You know, <laughs> yeah. There was a VR craze in the 90s, and there were movies about it. NASA made their own headset. Um, Sega tried to develop a VR uh, peripheral for the Genesis, as far as I know. Tiger Electronics made the R-Zone, which was sort of like the private eye display, but way, way, way crappier. Um, <laughs> they thought they could develop a VR application for it. So they used two of their private eye displays and mounted them on a headset and developed head tracking technology and built a tank demo game. And they figured out how to avoid motion sickness and they made this like immersive simulated world where you're putting, you put these essentially these goggles on and you seem like you're in a tank. And I don't think any screenshots of the thing exist today. It was just a development prototype thing that they would bring to these toy companies and, and show them what they could do. They brought it to Mattel, they brought it to Hasbro, they even brought it to Sega, and they all got turned down. I think it was most, the most interesting one to me is why Sega turned them down. One thing is they were worried that kids would get headaches because of the uh, 
because of the display. They were also annoyed with the color, the lack of colors. So they were they were at the time marketing and selling what was my very very first video game handheld console, the the Game Gear, which was a competitor to the Game Boy, and the Game Gear was stood out from the crowd because it had a backlit screen and a color screen, and of course the Game Boy had neither of those things. So Sega didn't want to license a technology that was more limited than what they were already offering, mm-hmm. so they passed on the reflection uh, on reflection technologies private eye. Eventually they brought it to Nintendo in Japan, and the person who picked it up and saw its potential was the inventor of the Game & Watch and the Game Boy, and uh, one of Nintendo's lead designers, Gunpei Yokoi. He had a particular design philosophy when it came to hardware that just fit with the kind of technology that he was looking at. So he had basically made a name for himself by taking cheap, inexpensive, widespread technology and repurposing it in a really innovative way. So back when calculator screens were uh, be, had become cheap and ubiquitous, he repurposed them to make these Game & Watch systems, which were prior to the Game Boy and kind of looked like a DS. They had two screens. Um, he repurposed other cheap technology to make the Game Boy, and that turned out to be an enormous success. You know, like I said, it sold... 118.69 million units. So it, the the choice of using, you know, he, there were other handheld devices at the time, and they were they would use more batteries, they had better screens, they had more colors, but they were all demolished by the Game Boy, partially because of how cheap and inexpensive and well uh, and well designed the Game Boy itself was. And he wanted to take a similar approach with the Virtual Boy. So the fact that it was limited to red and black, and the fact that it was using a cheap, widespread technology that was already found in printers was kind of a plus and fit with Yokoi's uh, design philosophy. But more than that, he had these this grand vision for the Virtual Boy, which makes me look at the actual product that got released and that's sitting on the table now and compare it to the vision he had for what it should have been, and just be amazed that the pressure of money and circumstance and the whole story compressed it into something that never would have come out if it had come out in a different decade or he had gotten his way with unlimited money. So the thing that actually happened is this strange amalgamation of ambition, but also economic constrictions and a market that was really viable and was already kind of oversaturated and was just sort of bad timing at the, when it was released. Anyway, he originally wanted the thing to be essentially a set of goggles that you would strap onto your head. And he was interested in a kind of immersive quality that was impossible to achieve if you were staring from four feet away at a TV screen where you saw the edges and knew where the game stopped and where the where reality started. So he was intrigued by the idea that you would transcend the limit of the screen, that if 2D gaming had gone as far as it could go, 3D seemed like the only place to go next. Nintendo had already done 2D really well with the Super Nintendo and with the original NES, and now instead of just making 
flashier and flashier graphics. He wanted to make graphics that had something totally new, and in this case it would be depth along uh, the third dimension. Another thing is that because the thing only had the red display on the black background, it gave you this feeling of infinite depth, this infinite horizon, and when you wore it, it was like that was the only thing in your world. So this idea of limitless potential and total immersion in a simulated space was a kind of intoxicating idea, and it's something that has only been recently achieved with the level of technology that gives us the PlayStation VR and the Oculus Rift and the HTC Vive. But back then, you know, that's what he wanted to do originally. However, so that this is like the grandest vision he could have, is this wearable headset with cheap technology but still an immersive world transcending the boundaries of 2D screens and um, giving you a limitless horizon and it would track your movements when you moved your head. It was just a complete simulated experience. However, one thing after another made them downgrade the, uh, the grand vision that they had. So the first thing is that engineers at the time were unsure whether the kind of radiation that was emitted by CPU chips would damage somehow the user's head. <laughs> the user, you know, like if it was if the radiation that the CPU had would would be bad for your brain essentially. So they had to stick a heavy metal casing around the CPU and that made it too heavy. So they made it eventually a shoulder mounted thing. But then they were worried that if a kid was wearing it in the backseat of a car and they got into an accident, they would have all this glass and plastic jammed into their face and it would be a liability nightmare. So then it became a strictly tabletop, you know, you have this strange crisscrossing stand which the viewport sits on, which are separable. I mean, you can take this off and just wave it around and it looks like a futuristic set of goggles, but it should have been goggles. Then it went to a shoulder mounted thing and then it got downgraded again to a tabletop device. This is the first moment where I'm understanding that ta the, on the tabletop with you sitting down and leaning into it is the way it's meant to be played? Well, not originally. Right? Not but originally, that's how... but, but that's they released it to be put on a tabletop yes. and played that way. Yes. Wow. Yeah, so it was, that, that that strange, like, it's so strange. That That's so bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean especially when so you play the psvr and you know how incredible and immersive you yeah. feel like you're in a different world that's how it originally was intended to be i mean you look at it you think goggles yes and originally you were supposed to wear it it became a tabletop device because of budget concerns safety concerns and the weight of the product itself Man, it's no wonder it's yeah. no wonder it flopped so badly yeah so at that point you know they probably should have canceled it uh, but it's the, the fact that it still came out is what fascinates me because why would you it just it looks so strange and the way you interact with it is so unlike anything you ever would want to normally do it takes six AA batteries and the battery pack interestingly enough is on the back of the controller which is again another unique thing that I've never seen in any other console oh, yeah. The on and off switch is on the controller itself, which again is something I've, I've never seen, certainly in any other Nintendo console, certainly not on any other modern console. You can also plug an AC adapter into the back of the controller and plug that into the wall. 
which you probably want to do unless you have rechargeable batteries because the thing will suck up six batteries in about four to five hours. <laughs> Man, and to think that like you expect these days for your two, well, I mean, not even these days because everything's rechargeable, but back like when I got the 360 in yeah. 2010, two, two double A's and a controller should last you at least a couple weeks. Yeah, and you think about the battery life you'd get on a normal Game Boy, four double A's, it might've been about 10 hours, something like that. That's certainly a whole day. But still. There yeah, are, that's... I mean, comparable consoles. You could put one or two double A's. I think the Neo Geo Pocket Color or the Wonderswan in Japan. You can get 40 hours of battery life. Now, now, what? Uh, what's the length of the of the wall adapter? The, the cord? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, do you have to like sit it, by it? It might unplug. only be a few feet. Yeah, but you have to be near enough to apply. Wow. The, the thing that that bothers me is that the Virtual Boy, you can't play any of its games unless you own the system. Almost every other system on, of Nintendo's that I can think of, you can rebuy in a new way. They're still available somehow. NES games are available on the Nintendo Switch now, so their oldest console you can play on their newest console. But the Virtual Boy, none of its games have been released ever again. <laughs> and, and so, I should say, there's only 14 games that were ever released in North America, and I've got I think ten. eight, nine, ten of them. <laughs> uh, it's a combination of these two words that have very charged significance in the 90s. Virtual meant virtual reality. It meant presence in a simulated world where you feel like you're in a different space. Virtual Boy is not virtual reality. Um, and the press at the time got upset for Nintendo marketing it that way because it, what it is is just 3D. It's not virtual reality. It's not a headset anymore. It didn't have the tracking technology. It's not com comparable to nowadays the PSVR and the Oculus. It just was riding the crest of this wave of popularity in the 90s where this cultural obsession happened with virtual reality. So it was called virtual reality. It was marketed as a virtual reality device, but it wasn't. Game Boy meant a portable, affordable Nintendo video game device, and the Virtual Boy doesn't fit those descriptive terms at all. It's not portable in any significant sense. So it was a, it was Virtual Boy, but it wasn't Virtual Reality, and it wasn't a Game Boy. It, it wasn't either of those things, and yet it is known by this phrase, which doesn't describe it. It's technically a 32-bit console, but it behaves more like something less than that, but not quite as low as the Super Nintendo, which was 16-bit. So in terms of technology, it's in this strange no-man's land. In terms of its marketing and its name, it's in a no-man's land. In terms of its form factor and design, it's in a no-man's land. In terms of its display in the monochromatic red and black, nothing else is like it. It just occupies an impossible space in the <laughs> video game market, and it shouldn't have been made. And it only happened as a result of a particular brand of Japanese design thinking and American, specifically New England, innovation that somehow happened to come across each other. And the fact that Nintendo, of all people, the, you know, the most successful Japanese video game company in the world, is the one that made it, and it completely flopped, makes it strange and unique and interesting and... On top of that, you can't play any of its games <laughs> unless you own the thing, and you can't see the 3D effect unless you're in person, so that's why it's been my 
obsession for the last three months. to a number of different places. Collectively, we've lived in California, Ohio, um, New England, D.C. Old England. Oh, yeah, England. <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, we've visited Ireland, uh, visited Canada, uh, and a bunch of other countries. The point is, we've seen so many cities, and were there any cities that we found particularly appealing, just, be, just in the way that they're laid out? Like, not like architecture, not... Um, like uh, features to see. Do you, just, do you more mean like planning? Like yeah, just like in how how it was designed. Give give. Can you give one of your own examples? Like what what was there a city you thought of that made you think this is so well designed that I realized how well designed it is? And we need so, a, we need a <laughs> podcast about it. <laughs> so so this isn't necessarily like it is it is so well designed and it is it is my favorite thing. But like different design features that. Uh, you you like you, you may not notice when you're in it, uh, but looking back on it, you really appreciate um, appreciate them. Um, and I I really don't like cities. I much prefer to be out in the country. Um, but I did live in the D.C. area for two years, and as much as D.C. can cause a lot of frustration, I actually really like it as a city. Driving in it. Nightmare. nightmare but <laughs> but uh but like everything else about it i think is just so great um for for one thing it's it's very walkable there there is a very efficient uh metro system when it's not broken down uh but a pretty good metro system it's efficient uh, when it's efficient yes <laughs> <laughs> and uh and so you can get to just about anywhere except georgetown because i don't know they want to be elitist but like it's, you can get around really easy. But even without the metro, you can just walk anywhere in the city, and go to all these free museums. And it's these big open spaces. The the like the walking mall or the national mall itself is just a wonderful place just to walk and and be outside. Um, you'll notice that there isn't much of a skyline. The old post office is the highest um, or the tallest structure. Yes. Um, it doesn't and, feel suffocating. Exactly. And that was uh, actually... I think the Washington Monument would have something to say about that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but, uh... I was actually just researching that today, the Washington Monument. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, because of Spider-Man Spider Homecoming. Because when we were watching Spider-Man Homecoming, there's a whole Washington <laughs> Monument scene, and there was this, like, offhand comment about how it was built by slaves, and I was like, is that true? Is that true? So I actually did research. Is it true? Uh, I feel like that... <laughs> So welcome to the new topic. <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> I mean, I, I can tell you. So just, just yes or no. This, you know how his hand gesture is like kind of well. The, basically, the, the the short answer is it would be harder to believe that slaves weren't involved than it would be to believe that they were. But there's no hard evidence that they were. You, your original question was about the layout and design of the city, but not about the architecture and the buildings. But insofar as... In terms as, of style. Oh, okay. So in like terms it, of size... Like, it's neoclassical, layout, it's, for the yeah. most part. 
Um, I mean, except a few of the museums, but um, but in terms of like layout and design, um, but that was actually done very intentionally. That um, it, it was something like a building could not be taller than the widest street that goes around it, which is really nice because no matter what time, if it's oh. daytime, there's so much natural light always. Wow. And it's it's very open. It's very like there's just a lot of open space. You know, um, I, you know this is so having lived in DC for, or in the DC metro area for four years, whenever I went downtown, I did notice this repeating square or rectangular pattern, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. What hmm. you just described, I think, might be the principle that I was sensing but not realizing, where the the width of the street is as tall as the tallest building can be. <laughs> I always noticed when I walked around that, yeah, it is walkable and there is a lot of natural light and the buildings are a lot shorter than I'm used to seeing. Yes. What, but what I remember noticing is how wide the streets are <laughs> and how big the sidewalks are. And even though the streets are wide, there's always all kinds of traffic. But the, <laughs> the fact that the buildings aren't tall makes it not feel congested and suffocating and intimidating the way that something like New York City can mm -hmm. or just any other city with skyscrapers or hardly any other city does that unless you're talking about like downtown Dublin. unless you're talking about like minor cities like Manchester <laughs> yeah well even Manchester though like you figure Manchester's tallest building is is pretty tall compared to anything you'd find in Dublin which is like the biggest city in a country DC is also grid based from from my perspective as a walker, like it, it's very much like sectioned off into perpendicular DC and parallel. Is pile of spaghetti based. Yeah. I was gonna say, yeah, kind of. Okay, <laughs> but like I think it was also. Uh, so this is another really interesting thing that um, streets in in all cities that were built before the uh, 20th century were not designed for cars. Uh, like, Weren't they designed for military? Well, not necessarily military, but my one one uh, not theory, but one uh, uh, maybe possibly myth that I've heard about DC is that they they designed it for uh, infiltrators for it to be difficult for infiltrators to escape from should there be an attack on our soil on our nation's capital uh, for for enemies to not be able to escape. Easily uh, because they don't know they don't know their way around. So it was funny. <laughs> that actually reminds me of a different um, layout design uh, known as uh, exclusion design, uh, where <clears throat> I think that's I think that's what it's called. Uh, it's deliberately designed to confuse someone Visitors. who does it. Yeah, who, a <laughs> yeah. visitor and actually direct them out. And actually, in Columbia, Maryland, direct it, them it, out of the city. Yeah. yeah. So like, if you don't know where you're going. And you just follow the roads; it will take you away from the town. <laughs> uh, huh. And it's what cities are designed like that. I know at least Columbia, um, Maryland, um, but like there Pittsburgh are. Pittsburgh seems like it's designed that way. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Though. But like, but like there are other uh, other cities that have that design of like if you are not from here, and you just follow the roads. You, we won't see you. <laughs> we don't want you here. Um, Follow the roads on a car? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, wow. But it is very weird in places where, like, roads will jog, and M Street just, like, cuts, like, a freaking crazy 
thing and then turns into another street. Um, but yeah, like there there is a lot of really weird malfunction junctions. Um, but back to the, to the other point of um, originally like streets weren't designed for cars. Streets were, and then cars kind of took over them. In fact, when the automobile first came out, there was a lot of uproar because so many kids were dying in the street from being hit by cars. Uh, because it just wasn't, streets weren't designed for that, and people would just walk on the streets wherever, whatever which way, because stagecoaches were around, were the thing. You could but hear a horse car, coming. Yeah, but, but, like, <laughs> but cars weren't, and if you jump in front of a horse, like, you might get banged up. You jump in front of an automobile, it sucks to suck, but, like, uh, they weren't, so a lot of cities, especially here on the East Coast, were not designed for cars, and so we've kind of had to, like, uh, retrofit, you know, designs to, to enable cars. Um, it, it's like when I see, when I, when I lived in England and I saw buildings that were older than America, but, yeah. but had internet cables <laughs> running along the floor, or you could see the electrical fixtures, in, like I say, inside of a building that's centuries and centuries old. It just wasn't built with electricity or with Wi-Fi in mind. And then it's see, like you have you have these grand like seeing these layers of chandeliers that technology. are meant to have these these like real candles, and you look up and it's just like <laughs> light bulbs that are shaped like flames. <laughs> it just makes me feel like it's a toy. <laughs> so so that's one example of a city that I particularly like as far as design as far goes. As Another one that I th that I think the design is just very interesting. It's very unique. As far as I know, there are no other cities like Salt Lake City. Um, and if you've ever been there, uh, it's very easy to get confused. Um, we were actually there. We were meeting someone at some address. It was like um, like the the number and street was like one thousand. I don't remember the street name. And we were right there, and there was, there, our friend was nowhere to be seen. And then we found out that there are actually four addresses with that same number. Uh, but one is north, one is south, one is east, and one is west. <laughs> and if you, uh, if you drive around Salt Lake City a little bit, you'll notice that they are concentric, if I can talk that way, concentric squares right. um, that all lead to the center of the city, namely um, the Mormon Temple. Um, so all these squares that go around this center yep. feature, um, and so this road is, you know, oh, it, it increases in thousands as you get further away. So as the numbers get smaller, that's it. As the numbers get smaller, you're getting closer to the temple. And, uh, so it would be... It sounds be, like it was designed by the French revolutionaries with the exact numbers and the metric... Maybe so. Is each I, I each just, square like is each square like a circuit that shares the same number, and then the sides yes. of that square determine the east west. And I I didn't look up uh, exactly how <clears throat> how it's broken down, but yeah, it'll be like uh, this is one thousand north, uh, one thousand east, one thousand south, one thousand uh, west is the name of the street. But do you, do you feel that when you're walking or driving around? I mean, do you notice that it's built on this concentric square design? Would you have known that if you, or, or even if you hadn't known that, what is the effect on someone who lives there? Because you only see it from the, the ground-based yeah. perspective. Yeah, um, it's an interesting way to, for, for one, it's an interesting way to orient yourself, much like a, a grid uh, program like for, for Chicago or, or New York City. 
Um, but it's also everything is in there's a focal point and you base your location off of that focal point and uh, as you walk around there are tall buildings so you don't always see the temple um, but like but if you're walking down like you know what direction it is in because you know you're on you know 10,000 uh, west um, so you know the temple is going to be to your left if you're walking south and you might like catch it between a couple buildings um, so it's based around a focal point rather than just a straight up grid. Yeah. Um, and you do, I guess, notice it driving into the city because you start noticing all these numbers um, and that they're, they're diminishing numbers and then suddenly they might be going back up. You're like, what's happening? And you may have passed the temple. Um, but yeah, like in terms of, I, I didn't spend too much time so walking like the, around. The, but. The, effect, the effect would be once you grasp the system, mm-hmm. you're constantly thinking about the temple and orienting yourself in relation to the temple. That's a really interesting effect. That's mm-hmm. like being in D.C. and realizing that the streets are as wide as the tallest building and then seeing that it creates this kind of long street, short building, big horizon, open space kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. But it's a different type of effect. It's not a location-based effect. It's like a atmosphere type effect now what you're saying about so you've got the exclusionary design mm-hmm. you've got the grid-based design you've got uh the dc type i'm not sure what to call it you've got the mormon concentric square type <laughs> I'm, like, I'm trying to think of i'm trying to think of what other principles have been used for cities but this might depend on whether some cities have been built or designed by a single designer. I mean, I have to imagine that like some yeah. of the older European cities just evolved and layered and layered and layered over time and they just sort of exploded. Like, I mean, you think about like Athens or Rome or one mm-hmm. of the old, old cities. They don't have a single principle that one designer imposed upon them. And the way that they are now is is what we described about streets coming before cars being and then having to retrofit them onto the onto the landscape but uh, at, at a scale so much wider than just one century's worth of technological development and then what does that do for the design of a city so was there a question in there? well i guess the, que- <laughs> the question would be what are what are what are some other what are some other principles of city okay. design and like what, yeah what, and, mean, then, so, and then what do you so, what do you do with the, the cities <clears throat> which can't have one principle because they have just been fair enough. Out, out and I, I, I made think of a couple other examples. Um, the having the fo- a focal point isn't necessarily a new thing. Um, virtually every town in some countries, like Italy, um, like the church is like or like the the central court uh, or town square. Um, the church is also there, and that is kind of the center of town. That's where people come together. That's where the cafes are, and all these things. Ones that have different designers um yeah that can make for some uh really especially if they're what actually if simultaneous they had no designers i mean is that possible uh i mean that might explain some more sprawling which is all also like kind of more out west where things are just kind of being settled more slowly but yeah like a more sprawling uh cityscape probably would be the result of um of that i think of another example that i learned of recently oklahoma city has a very interesting beginning where they had this chunk of land, I think the government like just like didn't want it, and they're like, "Here's what we're gonna do. When we fire the gun on this day at this time, you just run 
and like literally stake out your claim, like put stakes in the ground and say, this is my plot of land and that's yours. Um, and, uh, so every, like word got out and so many people came. Um, but then there were also some people who were cheating, uh, and they went into the territory and were hiding. And, uh, so they're called the Sooners because they went in too soon. Uh, and then there were some who waited for the, you know, the, were the, the rural biting citizens, uh, and they're called the Boomers. Um, and to this day in Oklahoma City University sporting events, they're the Boomers and the Sooners, and like there's like this family chant thing that's, that's going on. Um, but it caused a lot of problems because the Boomers would get, were starting to get deep into the territory, and then there are already people who have staked a claim. They're like, no, we were, you were, we were back couldn't. there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then, um, so anyways, but then like the, then it was just this mess because it, there's no design and people are just like this is my this is my spot and you have to cobble it together to make a city like someone has to yield some territory to like let streets and other like features coming through um and then like there were uh, a couple individuals who were like one was like trying to unite all of the plots into a city and uh, but it required that this other guy yield in order to make a road go through and he was just kind of like no so there's actually a road that cuts through <laughs> Oklahoma City that jogs at one point because this guy uh, just like refused to bend as well so yeah so <laughs> that, that's, like, that's like the freeform jazz jam band <laughs> but none of the members are at all playing Friends. in the same key <laughs> version of city planning mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure I can think of another type of design because I'm not sure I've noticed I any. I guess my question would just be, think of a city that you like and is there anything from a, from a design perspective that made you kind of like it? Um, so for me, like when I thought about DC, I loved the walkability. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I dislike other cities where, it, like, if you don't have a car, you can't see the whole city. Um, it just seems very very limiting. And um, I, f- I feel that way kind of, kind of uh, in San Diego, but also in Ventura, uh, close to where I went to college. If you didn't have a car, like, you couldn't see all the city. It was it was just too spread too out. Big, yeah. um, like, even Boston, like, it's a, it's a long walk, but you can walk from the north end through the Boston Commons and, like, in a reasonable amount of time. And... I love that. I love being able to be able to walk and 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 like really explore the city. Being able to just like drop me off and let me explore. Um, but if I need to have a car, it, uh, you, I, I realize you, I like that less. Would you just less. go? Would you go downtown and not have a destination in mind and just try to find something that day that was new? Would that be the kind of thing you would do in that? I would situation? typically try to have some destination and then see, kind of see where it goes. Um, I have actually. Well, sorry. Well, I have two. I have two. Well, I have one uh, answer in mind uh, for your first question about you know is there a city that that whose layout you love for a particular reason, but also the walkability. Um, my my favorite city that I have been to uh, is Pittsburgh. Personally, it has some personal reasons for that, but also it is far and away the most walkable city that I. Hmm have been in you can you can get from one end to the other at least all the interesting parts and interesting and safe parts uh, in, in a matter of minutes um it's it's 
I guess I guess the river does pose a bit of a challenge because then then there's a there's a, there's like Station Square on the other side of the river, which is which is is just absolutely gorgeous, and you can't walk there as obviously as easily as you could if you were just in the main part of the city. But like, um, I I always love the fact that you could get from one end to the other, and I it felt like ten fifteen minutes. Um, and so you could like you were saying just park and in and getting into it is just you know you get off the highway and you zip up into it, find a parallel parking spot and it's really not that expensive get out and just go so is, um, it, is it that you like how condensed everything is because the rivers force i've always well i've always felt if i compare if i compare it to my experiences in other cities like for instance boston i'll say that i like boston but to be perfectly honest the only thing i know about boston is the north end <laughs> and i could say that i like dc but perfect to be perfectly honest the only thing i know about dc is like the really National historical yeah. yeah like you know it's <laughs> so like to when you say dc's walkable like i've seen multiple parts of dc but they're so disconnected in my mind that it oh, feels okay. like they're just separate miles places. and miles and miles yeah. away yeah. and and I don't know any other part of Boston really, except for the for the North End and a few in the the music venues that we've been to when we go to concerts. And again, it's very disconnected because I'm navigationally challenged, and so I feel like I'm a little bit at well, a no, disadvantage I, in this conversation. I feel but. like I'm navigationally challenged too, so that if I'm going to learn the directions to a place, I don't know where I am in relation to other things. Mm -hmm. Usually, I just learn a sequence of steps that will get me to this place, and it gives me no sense of an overall design of the city. You can't sense the the beginning to end progression and all the stuff in between as one connected. Yeah, and I and I think of the directions to get to one spot as totally separate from directions mm -hmm. to get to another spot, so I can't I don't see it as a map and I have no clue what direction I'm facing. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's that that's one thing that struck me when when we moved to the other side the other side of Manchester was like driving around and saying, "Oh, that's where this is." And like, I, had, I had no, you know, no yeah. concept whatsoever. But but as far as Pittsburgh is concerned, I, I it it felt connected in my mind. For the, I think that's the huh. first city that felt like I, I I knew where things were in relation to each other, and it was all close enough that it it it, it felt more familiar. It felt more homey to me. Um, you get more of that. I, for me, I get that something closer to that if I'm walking and not driving. Absolutely. Because if I'm driving, I just am following a set of instructions that the computer is telling me mm -hmm. to do. I don't know if you could call this a design concept, and to be perfectly honest, I don't know if they specifically plan the city around this or not, but San Antonio with the Riverwalk is, I mean, obviously had a lot of memories of it growing up because my mom is from San Antonio. We visit it all the time, but it cuts right through the city and and is is an ex a pedestrian experience and where i grew up a, a town near plattsburgh new york which is like the, the the biggest city that's in in that whole adirondack area has a river going through the city kind of and it and it was always this discussion with my parents of course my mom being from san antonio which is like why don't they just you know turn that into a river walk and like it would have been this like really awesome draw for the city um that is what your mom sounds like that is exactly what she sounds like <laughs> uh well i can believe it or not that's the voice uh that she uses when she's imitating herself <laughs> so, <laughs> so i feel i have permission to to do that but is that do you have that any usually, examples of that? Yeah, no, I feel like I mean, obviously, idea. like that was in the earliest 
yeah. settlements, like the that was the get, only consideration. I mean, like, really. The older you get, the more likely it is that the city is built in water. Yeah, it's really funny that um, yeah that, that you bring that up because uh, like natural features like um, like a river yeah, bodies of or, or mountains or, or, or mountains yeah. exactly. But like I was I was thinking about it. Well, I was going to ask you guys a follow up question since uh, since you both feel like navigation is kind of uh, kind of difficult at times. Um, do you feel drawn to uh, like a grid-based system for the sake of orientation? I find, I find grid systems just... They could all be confusing in their own way. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes... The one time I felt oriented in a grid-based system or just a system of parallel streets is in Seattle where some of the street names are organized alphabetically. And I know that happens in other cities, too. I think it mm-hmm. happens DC somewhere in D.C. Yeah. A neighborhood like that. And it helped to know, oh, if I wanted to find this or that street, it's probably going to be X minutes of a walk because it'll take me this many blocks to get there, even if I don't know the street names anymore and can't find anything, most much of anything. If you know the alphabet, you're set. If, if you know, <laughs> yeah, if you, if you know the alphabet, you know how far you are in relation to another street that's parallel to the one you're on. But in other ways, grid systems can be intimidating because there's so many crisscrosses and it all blends together so you don't remember which street had that restaurant on that intersection <laughs> with that name and it just there's all no blends together because it's not yeah, yeah because it's not individual the and reason, idiosyncratic. The reason grid systems confuse me well it's not that they confuse me but the reason i might not like them is because the stakes seem higher to me because typically with a grid system you have a lot of one ways and if there's it like if there's a place i'm trying to get and i'm like approaching the turn and then as i'm about to make it i suddenly realize i'm not allowed to and then i go beyond it and i'm already panicking by the time i turn that way i've already forgotten how how much distance i've covered i don't know how far i've gone or like the random one way ambush makes a city as a driver really feel unfriendly because it seems like there's no rhyme or reason to the amount of well, like, I mean like we have it right here yeah um, we do have a lot of one way maple goes north and yeah goes even south. I I was about to say even on a smaller scale trying to find parking on Elm Street sometimes it, like I, I I want to Oh, like, yeah. I see the store, and it's like, I want to take the next right, and I just can't, and it's frustrating. And then, like, <laughs> by the time I go behind the buildings, I don't I don't have any orientation about where the yeah. store is from the, from the back just of it. Dumb. Well, I say I'm, 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 I'm probably challenged, and I don't notice those kind of patterns. So, like, I've never noticed that one street goes one way, and the other street is in one direction the other way, or that they alternate in some kind of... Repeating pattern. Yeah. That, that just never occurred to me to notice. It just seems random. Like, why? Oh. <laughs> Have you ever accidentally driven down a one-way street? Yeah. And I like. Uh, I don't think we actually I we I when I picked I you up from the airport, there was that yeah, guy. Yeah, some turd. <laughs> <laughs> just like, well, it wasn't even a one-way. It was, but there was a median between the two, and they were in our section coming right up. Yeah, it was. That was bizarre. Uh, anyways, I, I want to get to the, to the other point of uh, natural features. Um, natural features I like in just in terms of like the nice things to to see, but also like for orientation, like the Merrimack River makes things super easy. Uh, 
it it because it, it happens to run north and south, um, and so like if it didn't do that, you know maybe I would just kind of get used to it or I wouldn't be so lean so heavy on it. Um, but I do think about uh, two two cities in Montana, Helena. I can I almost never have my bearings because where my wife's family's house is is right up against uh, like the base of a mountain and it, for some reason I just got this idea stuck in my mind that it would just be perfect that uh, the sun would rise out looking out their kitchen window and set behind them behind the mountain but that's not it at all and nor is it even like it's going to rise you know to the right of the house and then set to the, to the, it's like on an angle. And so for, for some reason, like, it's so hard for me to get my bearings in terms of north, uh, north and south, um, in that city, uh, just because the mountain isn't in the right freaking direction. <laughs> like, it's, it's nothing, it's not the mountains, but it's just, it's just, I want to lean too heavy on, on that feature. Um, but Missoula, um, has kind of mountains all around it. Um, it's more like uh, in kind of like a valley. Um, and so that would be a lot easier to kind of get your bearings. Um, and so like, I am, th uh, maybe I'm just focusing too much on this, be able to orient or orientability. Um, because I think that's also what's nice about DC because there's not such tall buildings. It's easy to kind of figure out where you are. If you can like get a glimpses of, of kind of, you know, down certain monuments streets and or yeah, see see monuments, uh, especially the, capital the, or the exactly, um, and you can figure out where you are and you, and you know where you're going. Salt Lake City similar. If you know what street you're on, you know where you are in relation to the temple and where you want to be. And and being on foot takes away ninety percent of the problems we were just discussing of one way streets. <laughs> you can yeah. go wherever you want. <laughs> I feel like the cities are almost um, two places layered on top of each other because as a walker, it's very different from yeah. from being a driver. There's no sense of constant motion and the stress of finding a place to stop and deal with this enormous lethal machine. You can take in the atmosphere yeah. more. Ooh. On that, uh, there is another um, deliberate design that I, I think is particularly being used in more like in England um, of increasing the number of natural features like trees and, and such. And the idea, I mean, like not just trees, but also like wider sidewalks, uh, tighter buildings. And the idea is that if you're driving through, you're kind of forced to slow down. Um, not just because of, it, it, not just because of a law, but like just because of the features or the way that, that the city is designed, it forces you to slow down and kind of see how delightful the town is, <laughs> kind of kind of thing. Is um, the idea to eventually park and stop and get out on foot, and then by the time you get to the heart of the city, you're walking. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily it. I, I have to revisit the article where um, where I was reading about this. Um, but I think I think part of it was like the the building numbers are harder to see, and so if you're looking for a place, you have to you have to slow down in order to kind of find out okay. what it is. So it's not it's not you weren't saying that the the streets are getting smaller and the and the, the landmarks are getting bigger and more. And <laughs> Eventually, you're in this tunnel yeah. that <laughs> the car can't fit through anymore. Just, you're just talking about the numbers you have to look up and yeah, it notice just, it, things. 
it for yeah, it just forces you to take your drive a little slower than than you than you might have, so that you can appreciate. Mm-hmm. Some so of the this, so, so that would that be a case with city designed with cars in mind. Yes. Yeah. So having been to Helena, it almost so two things. One, it almost doesn't feel like a city to me because the buildings are so much more spaced out, sure. and because it's downtown. Like a town. Yeah, down. Yeah. yeah, it might feel like more like a town. I, one thing would be um, if you're in New York or sometimes DC, or a congested city where every street is full of buildings, you can only see the street in front of you or the the, the square around you. In Helena, it felt like I could see really far, and there were points where, yeah, like you're saying, there's a there's a mountain in the background in a residential area, or if you're downtown, you can see where the city just sort of peters out and ends, and then it's just a beautiful landscape behind it in the sense that you're inside nature instead of being inside a box machine that's been made by humans. It's a very different feel from an enormous city that encloses you. So that's one idea. The other idea would be, do you all have this idea too, that there's a, when you say city, there are cities which approximate more perfectly to this idea of a city and others that are kind of on the edge. So when you think city, you think Tokyo, Hong Kong, mm-hmm. New York, London. You think these enormous metropolitan areas. Metropolitan areas, <laughs> yeah. But then when I think about calling Manchester a city or Helena a city, these smaller, homier places, it's almost they're almost less of a city or it's, not quite a city or not even a city. It's funny that you like, bring so up Manchester. So what is a city? You know. Like, uh, growing up, uh, my, my hometown had t- has two stoplights. And okay. ele- <laughs> 11, <laughs> 11 miles away is Plattsburgh, New York. Um, and I, I was like 15 when I discovered that Plattsburgh was a city. Because it's like <laughs> it so it's tiny. like this street with like the Walmart and Sam's Club, and I knew about like New York City and Boston and Philadelphia and all these like the, the things with like forty story buildings and and then my my mom like or my dad city. yeah my mom or, or my dad or someone said something about the city of Plattsburgh and I was like what do, what do you it's mean not, like it's it's a <laughs> town it's not a city and so like then. Obviously, so I had the two ends of the spectrum as far as, like, what could a city be. I feel like Plattsburgh is about as small as it can get while still being a city. And then when I look at Manchester, to me, that's more of a city in my mind. Because I spent 22 years of my life with Plattsburgh being a city. But Manchester has, like, at least one big building. And that's (laughs) enough for me to call it a city. Having having just moved from the D.C. area, Manchester seems like a barely a city. To me, it's that perfect blend. I I hate. I don't like cities. I just it's or at least city living is is yeah, not city, attractive city to me. I like I like visiting cities, and that's so Manchester is like this perfect blend to me, of it, it can take me no time at all to yeah. get from a quiet, peaceful area into an exciting city area, and conversely, from that yeah, you, you know, from there out, you know. You know um, what, what I dislike would be living in a metropolitan area, yeah. and I only want to visit them for a day trip and see the highlights and get a feel for the flavor of it, but not get the hell out but of not, it. Yeah, but not, yeah, <laughs> so I want to live in London. So, so for, what defines for, a city to you, then? Oh, well, I, so I, I could go there, but the idea I had lined up was where you're more interested in being able to have access to a city without living in it, 
for me, what makes me like a city is more its style and more its history than whether it's a it ha, it's almost totally dependent on its history and its style. So my favorite city is Oxford in England, and there are lots of things that I like about it, but part of it is just that it's so old and so different from anything in America, and it feels like it's a medieval town that people just that just happened to survive to this day. That's cool. And you talk about the walkability of DC cars in Oxford are actively discouraged and if you have a car you can only see about ten, like from from my experience you can only see about 10% of the old Oxford the old downtown because there's only in my memory the way it works is that you have one big cross so you've got two or maybe four major roads that all meet in the middle and depending on how you count them and you can drive down those streets but there are there's a labyrinth of interconnected side streets that are only walkable and bikeable it's really a city for bikers and bicyclists and you must either bike or walk to learn to navigate from one college to the next and from one library to the next and it's you can orient yourself by these four main roads where the cars are allowed to go, but you just have to learn how many winding side streets there are by experience to figure out the shortest route to where you're going. You could never go as the bird flies usually. Um, but I guess what, what makes me like it isn't just that it's walkable and bikeable, it's that it is just so laden with history and ar different architectural styles and you can walk into a garden that looks like you could see if you know 16th century 14th century um, religious order living in and then come out onto a street where there's a modern day cinema and then manicured gardens in a in a botanical conservatory like there, there's so many um, it's so old and it's so laden with history and intellectual energy that you just have bigger and more refined thoughts by walking around in its atmosphere and a lot of that has to do with the architectural design and the way that the spires of the the main colleges are visible from the streets but also visible from within the colleges and how they are built out of stone instead of um, glass and metal there's a whole atmosphere and style of it that encourages thinking more grandly and walking more slowly and the, the absence of cars, because cars just can't fit onto most of the streets, insulates it from some aspects of technology that mm. make, that are distasteful to me in big metropolitan areas like London or New York that feels suffocating or just too fast-paced and too modern. So there's this sense of isolation, the sense of thinking grander thoughts, and you, you can just feel the intellectual energy, this like hive of thinking of all the greatest minds doing things at these colleges and pushing boundaries. And the fact that most of the buildings are institutions dedicated to higher learning, you know you're surrounded by all this stuff, and you know you're surrounded by colleges which had enormously famous scientists and authors and poets and 
astronomers, all these places. So the, the concentration of intellectual activity that's reflected in the architecture, that's what makes it so interesting. But it's not, you know, it could have been designed differently in terms of its streets, and I feel like I would still be interested in it, and I would still like it. If you, if you mixed up all the streets, and you still had the same buildings and places, and you just had to relearn the locations, I think I would still like it just as much. So I feel like the reasons why I like that city have almost nothing to do with the design in the sense that you're using the word, but there's so much more to the city oh, absolutely, yeah. than, than just the way it's designed. So I feel like I'm, I'm sort of unprepared to answer your question directly because I don't know if I've ever just walked around and noticed oh, this city is, is laid out this way, because I almost never orient myself. I just learn how to get from <laughs> the place I am to the place I want to go. Or it has some significance unrelated to navigation. Yes, like, like yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it could be that too. I, I still think you seem to have answered the question, and for in your case, the architecture was inseparable from kind of what you what you liked about it. Um, yeah. But yeah. that it it sure. is kind of... Force isolation, and that everything uh, hints at the grandeur of, of what has taken place there, what is taking place there. Um, that's a culture unto itself. Um, it's definitely that's not something a, yeah, that could be it's fabricated. A, it's definitely a culture. It's definitely a culture. Yeah. And it, it had to be. I mean, as an American going there, it's interesting because it, it feels so old. It feels so old. You can't get that feeling anywhere on American soil because the buildings just aren't that old. It's a very different kind of feeling, yeah. But I'm sure you, I'm sure you can get that in Ireland, anywhere in Europe. That was really. that was one of the first things that I, like we were walking, I mean deliriously walking around Dublin on 32 hours of being awake and just the first thing I did was like I turned my head and I saw like on a stone like just, I don't even remember what year, but I was like, <laughs> we don't have that back home. Yeah. And just like, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's just like, it's still, it's still there somehow. Like to, What's weird to me, is that the land, you know, the land is more or less equally old everywhere. Yeah. But somehow it feels older when the buildings and the human made stuff is and, older. And, and the thing is like, you put yourself in the, this is going to sound so stupid, but you put yourself in the shoes of that building. Like, and you picture this time lapse of its entire history and you watch the landscape just morph in your brain and it just seems impossible that it could still be standing there yeah. like you even even honestly even in America you think about buildings that were built before like George Washington was born that are still just like hanging out downtown <laughs> like how is that even like that's i guess that's just more a testament to you've been, to you've been to the place we rented on Cape Cod, which I think was built in the 1800s, something like that. that you rented it. Oh, oh, like uh, yeah, the counting house. It was an old building. It was an old, old building, um, not as old as George Washington, but still strange that it's over a hundred years old. You know, I just almost 150. Yeah, I like marvel at the resilience of like building materials that they would even last yeah, that long yeah. it's just crazy yeah. it's the, crazy to me the that what you just described was the primary impression i got from visiting rome for the only i think the only time i've been to rome it is so strange to look at a building that's over 2000 years old and then just see it how? then just see it next to a building that's 50 years old how like how is that even human like how it's is that quite strange it's what's quite the strange. oldest what's the oldest structure 
I'm gonna look it up. I don't know. Maybe like the, the ziggurats, the pyramids, <laughs> or something in something in. I, would th- I think something more Syrian or Babylonian would be standing older. structure. I'm gonna guess the ziggurats. What's oldest structures? Megalithic temples in Malta, dating back to Malta, uh, 3500 BC. Whoa. Uh, some of the oldest structures in the world. Would not have expected that. <laughs> they are a group of stone temples older than older than Stonehenge and the Egyptian pyramids. This is what they look like. Oh wow! Stonehenge came to mind. 3500 BC. That's freaking crazy. That's not possible. I don't believe that. <laughs> Fake news. We can. You can keep talking about whatever. I'm just. I'm now. I'm unplugged. <laughs> and, and I'm now looking at all the structures in the world. Anyway. stories I've ever heard and oh, yeah. <laughs> about about your personal life and I thought it was so funny that I screech laughed <laughs> and it scared Isaac so badly. Should I should I tell the story? You have to tell the story now, but it scared him so badly that he his whole face contorted and he started to cry because <laughs> he did not like the noise. And of course I felt terrible because I went from Enjoying one of the best jokes I've ever heard. To it's no joke. Feeling well, okay. One of, the, <laughs> one of the most humorous stories that I've heard. To feeling so guilty for making my son cry because <laughs> of my shrieking laughter. I think oh. you, what it wasn't even laughter. You were so the, the level of cringe. It was just screaming. Just oh, overcame yeah. you. I I don't know if I've heard more cringe. I've certainly not experienced more cringe since. Now, you, you, I really hope you haven't heard the story yet. I'm it's sure he hasn't. Story. I think that was the first time I've told it, and now I'm about to you put have, it on a podcast. But, it. <laughs> so, was your experience... Was your... <laughs> I'm scared already. Was your first experience with Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight a positive one? Yes. That is the case... For 99.99 repeating percent of people, I am the other percent. <laughs> you are the .0001 percent. Yes. Repeating, of course. Repeating. And, okay, so... It's impossible. <laughs> I'm, I'm at the movies. I'm at the movies watching it in theaters for the first time back in 2008 when it first came out. So, like, ideal way to see it. And we are... I'm there with my friend. I'm not going to name any names. I'm there with, with my buddy... And he and I had a mutual friend in this girl. Um, and so it was my friend sitting there, and then, and then the girl in the middle, and then I was on the right. And so we're watching. I can't remember. I can't even remember what was happening at the time. And I get this text on my phone, and I, I open. It was a flip phone. Um, I opened it up, and she, sitting right next to me, t- is texting, texting you. Has texted me during the movie, right then and there. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is your uh, Are your friends an item? No, no, no. Everyone's oh, no. just friends. Okay. Everyone is, like, the three of us are just, like, a like a trio gang of, like, 
awesome friend people, or so I thought. So, so she texts me in in the middle of the movie. In the middle of the movie, like texting. Movie is happening, and it says, <laughs> it says, I've never had the courage to tell you this, but I've always wanted to kiss you. Oh, good lord. <laughs> No sooner. No, no sooner. Okay, okay, okay. Let's just appreciate how awkward that is. We're already at, like, maximum level. We're already, like, I could just close ima- the books just on imagine this story. getting a text from the person sitting next to you where they're emotionally vomiting and you... During a movie where, like, everyone is, ang- everyone is like... Everyone's sitting, hypo- looking, hypothetically in, looking in one direction. Oh, my goodness. Handcuffed to their seat because we're experiencing this thing that no one's going to pause. It's like... <laughs> It's just such a strange contrast between you are stuck staring at a screen, but you're also one inch away from this other person who wants to tell you something very personal. And not only can I not get away, but I can't distracting. I can't I can't distance myself. I can't engage in something else. Like there is nothing like she she brought us into this this chamber of of like like she brought us into an interrogation room, much like Batman and the Joker at the time. That's right. And there was nowhere I could go. So then, I'm. But so you, as soon as you read the text. So I'm. I'm I've. Re- I've never had the the courage to tell you this, but I've always wanted to kiss you. And like I'm talking, no sooner did I finish reading you the text, no time and, to and process I, it. I don't. Yeah, I don't even mean process. Like I didn't even process it. Like I, I finished physically reading the words, <laughs> and my brain is about to say, "Okay, what no. does this mean?" My brain can't even ask that question before she grabs my face <laughs> and pulls it towards hers in the middle of this movie. And I'm, I'm like, my brain's still reading the text. My brain is still reading the text. I'm in, in my she, head. Was she puckering up as you were... I think it's the show was going on. So, so... So you figure, I'm pulling away, but I think what was actually physically happening is my brain was trying to get back to the phone to see what was happening on the phone right. while my body was being pulled forward by a Did you a see her puckering up, or did you just hear it in the darkness? I don't... I blacked out on every sensory level that I could. And and so, and like the other... Okay, so that's... that's we're now at phase so, two. So okay, so you, that's phase two. Okay. Phase, phase three... Of of the cringe is the fact that you had to just watch the rest of the movie. Well, that's phase four. Oh, so, <laughs> oh my god! So phase three is is small but <laughs> significant. In that, put yourself in this person's shoes, at the point where the head is resisting your pull. Yeah. What? What do you do? What should you do? Let go. Let go, right? No, you go right? in. You, no, yeah, right. <laughs> Apparently what you do is you just, you, like, you, it's a challenge accepted tug of war type moment. And I, I like, rip my head away at some point. And I think I, I think I recall her, her saying, like, damn it, and, like, turning towards the screen. Like, I mean, of course, you're just humiliated at that point. Like, what else do you even say? Like, she might not even remember what she said. And, like, so... The earth opened up and swallowed her whole... And this, this honestly, maybe the whole moral of this story is is just, it's a testament to how, how literally perfect a film The Dark Knight is. 
That's right. That I stayed in my seat because <laughs> I needed to. I needed to. Keep, I needed to keep watching this movie. And oh my gosh, when it when the movie ended and you like got up. That's it, that's you, the, that's phase make, five. Did you make eye contact? Phase five is the fact that we all rode in the same car. Oh. <laughs> so, so it's not like we could walk out of the movies and be like, oh, see ya. I have to go to the bathroom. I'm giving you a chance to run away. Uh, or I gotta go. Bye. I'll see you never. Like, it was like we all had to, like, we were hanging out for the day. Like, we were at my house. My, my buddy was, was from Virginia. He was visiting from Virginia. And she and I were local to the area. Um, and so, wow. like, we were... Even more ballsy. Do it in front of a stranger. Well, I mean, the, we, we were all friends. Too. Like, we had all gone to summer camp together. Oh, okay. So, like, we, we had convened at one point in the summer in in, in uh, New York. And then at some off period, he, he came to visit us. And we were all hanging out for the day. And, car, like, carpooling around. And the plan was to continue hanging out for the rest of the day, which we probably did because... At at that age, I had no savvy for for removing myself from those situations. I just figured I had to grin and bear it, and that's probably what I did. What I can't understand is why did she text you that she always wished she could kiss you and then didn't stop there because it's such an obvious invitation Telling someone that you want to be kissed. It's kind of like when, you, in retrospect, oh. when you look at, like, okay, so I look at aspects of, of, of my back history with my wife, and and there are certain things where it's, like, in the moment, you think you're not being obvious. You think you're not being clear. But then when you look back, it's like, there there is there are zero other ways to interpret what just happened. You know it's what I like mean? The equip- I mean, think about that to step process in any other situation and you realize how insane it is it's like calling someone on the phone on a landline that they're at home and saying hey you know i really wish i could come over to your house i've always wanted to come over to your house hanging up diving through the window and and then when you start swinging at them with a bat they just keep running at you (laughs) and then you find out they were actually invited for dinner so you have to sit there and eat with them (laughs) and then you realize you're their ride home that's right that's the that's the adult version of what I went I can't believe someone would do that in real life And that's the underwater (laughs) adventure bot. Yeah. (laughs)